you have your Bibles, please join us in Ephesians chapter 6. We started a theme. Actually, we tweaked our old theme. Our old theme was lifestyles of the rich and godly. And then we got to chapter 6 of Ephesians, and we tweaked it because it's talking about spiritual warfare. And so we're calling our new theme, Battles of the Rich and Godly. And this is part 3 into our new series through Ephesians 6. And we're going to look at verses 14 to 15. We had tried to fit verse 14 into last week's sermon, but it just was too much to handle. So we're going to try to look at verses 14 and 15 today of Ephesians chapter 6. And the title of our lesson today is going to be called Standing Ready. Standing Ready. If you remember last week, it was called Standing Firm. This one's a little bit similar, but a little bit different as well. Standing Ready. Did you ever feel unprepared for something important? Consider that question. Growing up, I, w- I have always been a, a fan of kids. I don't know why that is. I don't know if I am a, just a big kid, but I've always enjoyed being around kids. When it was time to be in a ministry, when I went to school, we had to have ministry credits, and I had to find a ministry in our church to serve, and the obvious choice for me was working with kids because I just enjoyed kids so much, and that was a natural fit. I think like a kid. I act like a kid. I just wanted to be around kids, and so for like three years in college, I, I taught little kids ministry, and I loved it. And so I honestly thought that when it was time for me to have my own children, I was going to be really naturally great at it because I just, I know, I just loved kids. It was just going to be a natural thing. So when I got married, I was excited to have children. And when we found out we were pregnant with our first child, I was really excited and thinking, I'm going to be a natural at this. I'm, going to, I'm just going to do great at this. And then we were found, found out we were having a son, and I was even more excited, right? Because let's be honest. Uh, no, girls, girls are great. But I was, I was excited to find out we were having our first son, and I was thinking, this is going to go really well. I'm going to do it really well. And then we actually had the kid. Haddon came into labor. It was July, middle of July, and uh, Janine went into labor. And uh, it was a very nerve-wracking time because I had no experience for that at all. But Janine went into labor, and she went into action. She actually went into labor the evening of July 17th. So it was about 7 p.m. when she went into labor, if I remember right. And, And it was our first baby. She was in labor all night long. So we missed our first night of sleep because Janine was in labor that long. And Haddon wasn't born until like 6 a.m. of the 18th of July. And so we missed out on that that sleep, that night's sleep. And I'm just setting some context because then Haddon came. And, you know, we're excited. Our son is here. He was healthy. He was doing good. Janine actually had some complications afterwards. But uh, they got her all fixed up. And we were able to, you know, start caring for our son and, and I remember because Janine had some of those complications that I was sort of the one that sort of had to take over and start caring for Haddon, some of Haddon's needs. Now, at the beginning, it's, it's a great little handoff because the nurses are helping you. They're, you know, they're showing you what to do and, you know, cleaning him up and they're weighing him. And they're even for, for a while changing a few of his diapers. And, and then they're like, okay, this is your son. This is something you should do. And then they hand it over. And I just remember that experience changing in my mind going, oh, no, now what? And Janine couldn't do some of these things, and now I'm doing it. I'm trying to change this kid's diaper. I think it was the first diaper I had ever changed in my life. And Haddon was such a little guy, even the newborn diaper, he was like swimming in it. And it took me like nine tries to get that thing on him. And so I was changing the diaper. I finally got it on, and then he did something every kid does, but no dad wants to, wants, wants to do with this. He went number two. And I won't, I won't go through the details, but um, how can I say this? The texture of newborn number two is very odd. It's very weird and it's very gross. And I had to go up and change this kid's diaper and I'm like, I am not fit for this. Where's mom? Mom, get up and do this. I am not good at this. And it, I, I remember they give you like these wipes and there's like 65 wipes in each package. I think it took me 45 wipes <laughs> to do his first number two diaper. 
finally I got the kid cleaned up and I got it back on him. And Janine and I, we had been up all night because the night before we were in labor. And so now we have a brand new kid. Night number one in the hospital, you have a brand new kid. And that experience is just, it's, it's like an out-of-body experience. There's nothing to prepare you for that when you're first child. And so I remember the nurses kind of being there, but also letting you do your thing. And But Haddon is not sleeping, of course. They don't sleep. They don't sleep for months and years after that. But... Um, <laughs> But finally, you get the kid to sleep. He's eating. He falls asleep. And then what happens? Right as you get him to sleep, a nurse comes in, and she's got to take some blood pressure, do something, poke the baby. And so I remember that first night, the nurse is coming in like six or seven times after we finally got to sleep. And so it was like a sleep tease all night. And we ended up getting like maybe an hour or something like that. I was exhausted. I can't even imagine how exhausted my wife was. But I remember thinking, honestly thinking at that moment, this is not going to go well, and I'm never going to sleep again. And I don't have my mind. I, I was so tired, I fell asleep standing up. Anyone been there? <laughs> I was so tired, I didn't need a position. I just fell asleep. And that was just the beginning because then by day three, it was time to go home. Which you're thankful for in a sense because now you're on your own turf. You can make your own rules. You can sleep or try to sleep. But the problem is, is there's no help. And now you're on your own with kid number one. And everything that happens with that kid is up to you. And I just remember that being a very terrifying experience. So now I'm terrified and I'm tired. That's a rough combo. And uh, kid number one, I just remember my perspective changing, going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock this out of the park too, going, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I do not feel ready for this. I do not pre- feel prepared for this. And God must have felt we were, we were doing pretty good because then he gave us two children at once after that. We had twins following that. And then I found out what real tiredness was like. And <laughs> anyways, did you ever feel unprepared for something important? Well, today we're going to talk about being prepared. We're calling the lesson today, Standing Ready. And if you have your Bibles, look at verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians chapter 6 and listen to what Paul says. He says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's our text today. We have two goals today, two very simple goals. Goal number one is this, to daily put on this breastplate of righteousness so that you and I can stand firm against the vicious attacks and deceptions of the devil. We need this breastplate of righteousness that Paul is going to talk about. Goal number two is to stand ready, ready to move based on how the gospel of peace teaches us and blesses us. So those are our two goals, to daily put on the breastplate of righteousness, and number two is to stand ready to move, based on what we learn about the gospel of peace. If you remember last time, we talked about standing firm. Standing firm was the exhortation in the verse right before this, because we are seeking to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil, the wiles of the devil, the trickeries of the devil. And we learned last time how important it is to have God's strength in order to stand firm. We need God's power, God's might, in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. So you and I must discipline ourselves for this battle. Discipline is our role, not God's. God gives the strength and he expects us to have the discipline in order to stand firm. But we also need God's strength, don't we? We need something otherworldly. We need something divine. Verse verse 10 said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Recognize you don't have the strength for this battle and go to the Lord for that strength. And then team that strength with your discipline. Because if we have both discipline, 
to stand firm and God's strength to stand firm, then we're going to be impossible for the devil to take down. And God's word promises something, promises something quite extraordinary, that if you and I resist the devil, he will flee from us. That's what it says in James 4, 7. If we resist the devil with God's strength, he will flee from us. Imagine the devil running away from you. That's the promise God gives us, that if we resist him, he will hightail it. He will run away from us and flee. We need to remember two things, though. These are, thing, these are things that are really important for us to remember. Number one is that the devil's full and final goal is our destruction. This is serious. This is a serious, important thing we're talking about today. His number one goal is our destruction. Why? Because it would rob God of his glory. He can't hurt God directly. He must try to hurt God indirectly. And the way he's going to try to hurt God is by destroying God's people. So that's his one goal. That's his big prize is to rob the glory of God through our destruction. So we need to remember that. And we need to remember this as well, that this is a fight to the death. It's a fight to the death. Either we are destroyed or the devil is destroyed. And we need to remember that as we enter into this battle because this is a very, very serious and important thing we're talking about today. This transcends anything else in your life. It's more important than family. It's more important than your health. It's more important than your schoolwork or your work, your job. It's more important than all of those things combined. So either we succeed and we finish our path or we're deceived and we're destroyed. This fight cannot be overemphasized. It is real and it's happening right now. Regardless if we feel we're ready or prepared for it, this battle is happening right now. So we need to prepare. We need to be ready. We need to be ready to stand against the devil. The time to prepare is today. You could probably say the time to prepare was yesterday, but yesterday is gone. So we need to prepare our minds and hearts for this battle today. And last time we looked at the belt of truth and how vital it is to stay tethered to God's truth. Truth also cannot be overemphasized, can it? How important is truth? I really can't answer that question because it's of utmost important. Truth is the catalyst in fighting the devil's lies. Last time we talked about if we don't have truth, if we do not know truth, we're like spiritual kites, flowing about in the breeze, going this way and that way, wherever the devil and wherever the world want to take us. But truth tethers us down. And without a great belief in and understanding of what God says, we have no chance in this battle. The devil's too crafty. He's too crafty for us to assume that we can stand upon our own logic, our own bits and pieces of truth, our own strength. He is too crafty for us. We need God's truth. We need to strive after truth. Not just come and hear it once every week, but strive to know it, strive to understand it. Strive to discipline ourselves to understand truth. We must be those kind of disciplined people. And I want that for this church. I want Wyoming Valley Church for all of us to strive after God's truth. Because without it, we're sitting ducks. We're going to be a statistic, a mark on the wall for the devil if we don't know truth. Are you striving after truth in your daily disciplines? We must know truth each and every day. We must know God's whole truth each and every day. We have to strive for that. And today we want to focus our attention on the pieces of armor that are defined primarily by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think it's good. I think it was right that we didn't include the breastplate of righteousness last week because it goes really well with this uh, gospel of peace that we're going to talk about. 
But the next piece we're going to talk about is this breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. It wouldn't surprise you that a breastplate is pretty important piece of armor in battle, right? Because what does it protect? It protects your heart. It protects a vital organ like the heart. And I want to know, if you were in battle, if you were going to enter into a physical battle, what would you want your breastplate to be made out of? See, breastplates were often made out of iron and steel, really strong material, because they had to withstand a fatal death blow, an arrow or a sword, trying to get at your heart. And so it is with spiritual armor. So it is with the spiritual breastplate. It is made and needs to be made out of the strongest material there is. Otherwise, there's no chance that we can enter into battle. We can't enter into battle without the breastplate of righteousness. We cannot stand firm without the breastplate of righteousness. It is protecting our most vital part, our heart. Not our heart organ, the core of us, the, the place in us that thinks and reasons and makes decisions. The breastplate of righteousness is that breastplate, is that thing protecting us. And so we need to be made out of the strongest material there is. And I'm telling you today that the breastplate of righteousness is made out of the strongest material spiritually there is. It's made out of righteousness. It's made out of being perfectly moral and pure. That is the breastplate of righteousness, to be protected by something that is perfectly morally pure. Righteousness is far and above the strongest spiritual characteristic we have, making it capable of protecting our hearts. The righteousness Paul refers to is not a trait that you and I have within ourselves. It's not. It's one that is granted to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness is a gift from God. It is nothing we own on our own. Okay, It's something that God gives us. If you know Scripture, you know it's accurate that we are sinners and ungodly creatures by nature. If Satan wants to inflict mortal damage on an ungodly person, he simply places a mirror in front of them. And they have no defense. He puts a mirror right in front of an ungodly person. They see their, sin, their sinfulness. They see their ungodliness. And they're undone. That's all Satan has to do is put a mirror in front of us because we are ungodly on our own. We're not righteous on our own. On our own, there is nothing to be done when Satan accuses us of being spiritually filthy. We don't have a defense without the breastplate of righteousness. But the hope today, that the promise today, is that we can find cleansing. We can find full righteousness. And the gospel is how we find and arm ourselves with the breastplate of righteousness. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing and believing what the word of God says about the gospel. That is how we arm ourselves with this breastplate of righteousness. See, the gospel means good news. That's what it means. The word gospel means good news. And it's very good news that although you and I do not have righteousness and godliness on our own, that we are actually sinners and spiritually unclean, it's good news that we don't have to remain that way. We don't have to remain that way. That is the good news that we find today. In order to find true and full righteousness, we must first admit that we don't have it on our own. That's step number one. Admitting that you are not righteous on your own is step number one to receiving the breastplate of righteousness. It's kind of the same way if you've ever been lost somewhere. You can't find your way until you admit you're lost. I've done this several times. I can't actually get home, get to where I want to go until I admit, Todd, you're lost. You're lost. And then I can find my way home. I can turn around. 
And when Jesus came, he said this in Luke 5.32, he said this phrase, he said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't mean that there are actually righteous people on their own. That's not what he meant. The scriptures make it crystal clear that none of us are righteous on our own. None of us, myself included. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is righteous on his own. What Jesus meant is that he didn't come to call the self-righteous. Because the self-righteous don't see any need for salvation. They don't see any need. Remember the Pharisees were these type of people. Jesus often dealt with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were these type of people that looked at Jesus going, you've got to be kidding me. I don't need righteousness. I don't need you to do anything for me. I don't need your salvation. I am righteous on my own. I obey God's law. I have secured my own righteousness. You have nothing to do for me. There's nothing that you can offer me that I don't already have. So guess what? Most of the Pharisees didn't receive Christ's salvation because he didn't come to call people like that. He came to call sinners who know they're sinners who need salvation. But the Pharisees, people like the self-righteous, have no understanding that they are lost without Jesus. See, Jesus can and must, excuse me, Jesus can and will definitely help every soul that wants him. But he will not be sought by those who feel they are fine without him. Will he? No one will seek Jesus until they think and they believe that they are in need of salvation. So the first step to true spiritual restoration is admitting that you and I are unclean and in need of divine cleansing. If you want full God's righteousness, God's full righteousness, you just simply need to admit it. Admit that you need God's righteousness. Have you admitted that to God today? Have you admitted that? I am in need, God. I am in need of your righteousness. I do not have my own. I am ungodly. I am a sinner by nature. If I am to find righteousness on my own, I'm going to be undone. I need to be granted your salvation and your righteousness. See, if someone could admit that, they are unrighteous on their own, which is the most plainly obvious truth in the world. They can find full righteousness in Jesus. Amen? Full righteousness in Jesus. We know we're sinners by nature, right? We know that. We need to know that. How can anyone seek to argue that we are not? Does anyone have children? Does anyone see what children are capable at, even at really young ages? Are they natural sinners? Of course they are. They're really good at lying. They're really good at hitting. They're really good at stealing toys. All of us are. We are natural sinners. I want you to consider the things that you simply think about every day, let alone your actions. What do you think about every single day? Are they all righteous? Are all your thoughts righteous? Every one of them. Do you only seek after loving God and loving others with your time? Of course, none of us can claim such a silly notion if we're in our right minds. None of us are righteous on our own. But many cannot get past this step. They cannot admit that they are filthy and in need of God's restoration and salvation. And what a true shame it is to have the fountain of cleansing, Christ Jesus, come to this earth to cleanse us. And so many people reject him and stay in their filth because they cannot admit that they need to be cleansed. That is devastating. It's devastating. That that's why most people stay in their sins. They don't admit that they need salvation. If you are one of those today, still trying to cling on to your own righteousness, today is the day to let it go. To let go of that dead, futile branch because it's doing nothing for you. It's doing nothing 
to help you. In fact, your claim to be self-righteous is actually keeping you from eternal life. Let go of self-righteousness. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. It is fool's gold. The only one who is truly righteous on his own is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need his righteousness. Now, it may seem dangerous to let go of self-righteousness, but here's the thing. The Savior can only help those in need of saving. The lifeguard will only come unless will only come once you start saying and yelling, I'm drowning. And that's what the Savior does. As soon as you let go of your self-righteousness and admit your need, the Savior is there right away to pick you up before you drown. Jesus has true, full righteousness to give you, to give me, to give all of us. If we admit our need for it, we're going to find it straight away. Jesus, does, Jesus never teases anyone with cleansing. If cleansing is what you desire, cleansing is what you will have. Because that's what our Lord does. He is the agent of cleansing. He is the agent of salvation, the agent of righteousness. If and when you find Jesus, you are cleansed head to toe, inside and out. It's amazing, isn't it? You are clean. You are righteous before God. For those who have faith in Jesus, Jesus places his full righteousness on us like a cloak. We are covered in his pure righteousness for all eternity. Amen? Amen to that. Can you fathom the righteousness of Jesus? Can any of us? Can you fathom that? Can you fathom standing before a holy God one day, fully righteous like Jesus is? Can you fathom coming to the massive gates of the kingdom of heaven, fit only for the righteous, and having the doors fling open wide for you? I want you to listen to this passage from Psalm 24, verses 3 to 10, regarding the power of Christ's righteousness. This is an amazing passage. It says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The righteousness of Jesus causes the mighty gates of heaven to fling open wide like automatic doors at a grocery store because Christ is pure and righteous and the gates of heaven bow to his majesty. And this is precisely the righteousness Christ is willing and able to clothe you and I in. Righteousness given to us will also fling open wide the gates of heaven one day for you and I to enter in. That's amazing. That's an amazing truth to know that the gates of heaven will be flung open wide because we are righteous, fully righteous in God's eyes, thanks to Jesus. And without full righteousness, without it, we don't step one foot into heaven. Heaven is a place for the righteous. The, the ungodly and the wicked will not step one foot into the kingdom of God. You are either fully righteous or you're rejected. Making it pretty important. Isn't full righteousness pretty important? 
if that is the ticket into the kingdom of God. See, when Christ saves us, he places his full righteousness upon us in full. He fully takes our sin upon the cross and he trades us his righteousness. I can't fathom that. I can't fathom the Lord Jesus taking my sins and trading me his righteousness, but that's what the word of God says he does. And now we can be fully righteous in God's eyes. I want you to consider that. To be fully righteous in the eyes of God, whatever you've done, whatever you've thought, however you've sinned, God sees you as righteous. Thanks to Jesus. If we have this breastplate of righteousness and the devil now wants to place the mirror in front of us, guess what it's going to reflect back? The nature of Jesus. Now when he places the mirror in front of those who have faith in Christ, it reflects the nature of Jesus back to us. No longer our filthiness. Wow. And the devil's going to be disarmed in his attacks. For when he tells us that we are ungodly, we can respond with, that is true. That is true. But Christ has clothed me in his own righteousness, and I am clean before him. We are not self-righteous people. Christ is our righteousness. This means that our sinfulness can no longer accomplish Satan's death blow. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We are healed. We are cleansed. We are new. We are righteous in God's eyes. And the devil's accusations against us were taken care of at the cross of Calvary. We don't answer back our own righteousness. We answer back Christ's righteousness on our behalf. That's a big difference. I want to give you an illustration to make this work in our minds. Let's say a debt collector called you one day. Maybe you've actually had this happen. But a debt collector calls you on the phone, and he's chasing down a really large debt, a debt that you owe of $50,000. And they're angry. They want their money. It's time to pay. And he starts making all sorts of wild threats, like garnishing our wages, intercepting our tax refund, perhaps even taking our home and our car, maybe even to the extent of throwing us in prison for the lack of payment. The threats would be terrifying, wouldn't they? And it would shake our confidence that day, to be sure, because hardly anyone just has $50,000 to make a payment that day and settle the debt. So after the phone call, we'd be filled with dread. We'd have no confidence at all. Now, I want you to consider the same scenario only this time you're holding in your hand a check for $1 million that was just given to you as part of an endowment. Only moments ago, you took that check and you deposited it in full into your bank account. So as the man begins to rattle off the list of threats, are you concerned anymore? Wouldn't you almost smile at the confidence you have of paying that debt that very day and silencing this man's power over you? That's a sample of what we're talking about with Christ and his breastplate of righteousness. If Christ has paid our debt in full, and he has for everyone who has faith in him, young and old, mature and immature, if you have faith in Christ, you have Christ's full righteousness. And if he has paid your debt in full, then what can the devil really threaten us with? Shouldn't the confidence we have in Christ cause rejoicing? Even in the midst of Satan's threats, knowing that none of them hold water anymore, and once we have access to this righteousness by faith, we can and we must clothe ourselves daily in this righteousness. And this is crucial. This is crucial to standing against the devil because he wants to constantly accuse you and I of still being filthy, still being undeserving of being with our God. But if we daily admit our need for Christ and we're daily cloaked and covered in his righteousness, 
then no matter the fiery darts that come to us, they're going to bounce off like rubber bands. Because we are righteous thanks to Jesus. Christ's righteousness is our eternal life. His righteousness is my hope of eternal life. And Christ's righteousness is Satan's doom. When the righteous are called home on the last day, the exact same call will condemn those souls who are not. And guess who's at the top of the list? The devil and his minions. Are you fully righteous today in Christ? Have you sought him for salvation? If not, today is the day. Today is the day for you to seek him, for you to find that full righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness teamed with the belt of truth that we already talked about is exactly what we need in order to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. But here's the question. If we have been saved and Christ has clothed us in his righteousness, how do we practically wear that clothing? How do we practically wear that righteousness? Because every single day, Satan tries to accuse us of being still filthy, still ungodly, saying to us, God couldn't really love you. So how do we daily practically wear this garment? I think it's this. We need to recite and remind ourselves of God's resume of love through Christ Jesus. You need to remember. Remember the Israelites in the Old Testament. Their biggest advice was that they forgot. They forgot the Red Sea. They got into the wilderness and they started to murmur, going, how is God going to provide for us now? And in the back of their minds is the splitting of the Red Sea. God literally split the waters in two and they walked in dry ground. And when the enemies tried to pursue them, the water came back down on top of them. And they forgot. They neglected. And they started to consider that maybe God doesn't love them. Maybe he's here to abandon us and not feed us and not give us water. So you and I must not be like the Israelites that way. We need to remember. We need to recite and remind ourselves of God's resume of love. Hasn't God loved you? Not just on the cross, but every week, every day of your life. Isn't there a long resume of God's love that you and I can go over? I know there is for my life. We need to recall the gospel truths that Christ came to seek and save those who were lost. And you and I hopefully have admitted our need for Jesus and he has clothed us in his full righteousness saying to the devil, God couldn't love me. God has loved me. And he continues to love me each and every day. Remind yourself. Recite those truths to yourself. And in that way, we practically dunk ourselves in the cleansing fountain of Jesus. See, salvation doesn't need to happen over and over. Once you're saved, you're saved. And there is a sense that once Christ has cloaked us in his righteousness, we're never filthy again. That is true. But the lies of the devil that we couldn't possibly be clean come to our minds daily seeking to convince us that we are not really saved, that we should abandon the path of Christ. So in order to recall our spiritual cleanliness, we need to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, perhaps even daily admitting our natural uncleanliness and pleading for Christ's righteousness before God and before the devil. If we admit that we need Jesus, we prove, we prove that we have been cleansed and Satan is disarmed. We don't have self-righteousness, and we don't claim to. We have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us through the gospel. See, when we believe the gospel, we disarm the devil. He has two really big weapons. 
and he likes to use them, and they're really powerful. They're called sin and death. Sin and death are the devil's two biggest weapons. But when you remind yourselves and when you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you disarm the devil. You take away sin, and you take away the consequence of that sin, death. And he has nothing left. He has nothing to harm you with anymore. In 2 Corinthians 5, listen to what Paul says. Listen to this verse. It says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That might be one of the most amazing passages in the entire scripture. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who never knew sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Wow. What can the devil answer back to us when we are girded with truth and girded with righteousness? If we know truth and we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, the devil is disarmed, and that's the goal, to disarm him. Now we have one last piece of armor to look at today. The last piece of armor we're going to look at today is similar to shoes. The way Paul describes it in verse 15 is this. He says this, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I'm going to read that one more time. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So it's, excuse me, gospel of peace. So it's like shoes, but it's not exactly like shoes. We've discussed the gospel already. The exact same gospel which declares that we can be fully righteous through faith in Christ is the gospel of peace that readies us for battle. It gets us prepared for battle. Remember the beginning of the lesson? Have you ever been unprepared for something important? See, the shoes of readiness prepare us for battle. Let's first discuss our need for shoes or protection for our feet inside of battle. Most traps that are laid down are laid down for the feet, are they not? laid down for the feet where people walk on paths. Because besides the ultimate death blow, if the enemy can damage our feet or damage our readiness, he can cease all forward progress, all marching. If we don't progress, we don't finish. And if we don't finish, we perish. So the devil tries to set traps right where our feet going. So we need protection for our feet, or we're going to call it readiness. Feet, too, must be protected with strong material. Because what good is a soldier without healthy feet? It's interesting that Paul says that shoes are proper for readiness. Notice the word readiness, being ready to move. Not necessarily moving forward, but being ready to move forward. Obviously, we know shoes help with moving forward. But Paul might be reminding us once again that our movement and progress depends entirely upon the orders of the Lord. His orders, his commands. Because we have a captain in this battle. We don't move until he says so. We stay if he says stay. We move if he says move. So we are given shoes for readiness, being ready to move. Because you and I do not move on our own. We are waiting for commandments from our Lord Jesus Christ. And honestly, sometimes obedience means staying put, doesn't it? It means not taking a job. Sometimes it means not marrying a certain person or not going to a certain place. Sometimes obedience means staying put. And we get those commands, we get those orders from our captain, from our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are to be ready to move at all times. Ready to move at all times. And we wait on the Lord to direct our steps. You guys know the verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, don't you? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart 
and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. It must be quite an anxious and nerve-wracking experience in the midst of battle to have to stay put and hold fast your position, to not move forward and not move backward, but to wait in anticipation for your orders. That has to be a nerve-wracking experience because the enemy could be creeping in closer and closer. But this is precisely why Paul says we need the gospel of peace. Look at it again, the gospel of peace in verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. See, last time we mentioned how important confidence is in battle. We need confidence. When a soldier is confident, he's the best version of himself. Confident. So it is when the soldier has peace from God. Peace. Peace in the midst of war sounds like a silly notion, doesn't it? It's an oxymoron. Peace in the midst of war? Because peace and war, they're so polar opposite. How does that make any sense? But God desires that you and I have peace in the midst of the battle. Not abstaining from the battle. He wants us to have peace in the midst of battle. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of the battle, we are to have peace. Because the Lord knows that anxiety and worry are going to cause erratic movements. Ones that might place us in harm. Place us in harm's way. We are not just to move, but to move correctly. According to the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. So whether we are to move or to stand our ground, we need God's peace in order to do that. We need peace. And of course, because of that, we circle back to the gospel because the good news of Jesus brings us this peace. God's acceptance of us through Jesus gives us peace with God, peace within our soul, and peace of the future. Peace. Do you have peace today? Consider what you're like when you don't have peace in your soul. What do you act like when you don't have that peace in your soul? When we don't have peace, what do we do? We fret, we worry, we pace back and forth, we sweat, we second guess. Worst of all, we're prone to sin, aren't we? God knows this. And that is why he sent us the gift of peace, because peace calms the soul. And a calm soul isn't frenzied. A calm soul isn't anxious. A calm soul is not making sudden and haphazard movements. God's peace brings us directly to the center of the battle amidst spiritual arrows and darts flying about our head because of these two things. The Lord goes before us and we trust his battle plan. We have peace in the midst of battle because the Lord goes before us and we trust his battle plan. Isn't it important to have peace? Isn't that important? I hope, you, I hope you know that it's important to have peace. And there is peace simply by trusting in who our Lord is and that his plan cannot, cannot fail. It's impossible. I want to consider three things that peace brings to the soul. Three things that prepare us for battle based on the gospel of peace. How can we be ready for battle thanks to the gospel of peace? Three things. Number one, peace brings about repentance. Repentance of sin. Repentance is turning away from sin. Yeah, sin has an aspect of pleasure, doesn't it? In the moment, sin has an aspect of pleasure. But you know what sin never has? Peace. Sin is entirely void of peace. 
it brings trouble to our souls. It brings guilt to our souls, which is the opposite of peace. Sin makes us anxious and full of shame. As soon as we open up the package of sin, it begins to steal from us. Not to mention it hurts our great God and our great Lord Jesus. Sin is devastating. It harms our soul. It harms our God and it robs us of our peace. But when the Lord calls us to repent, he calls us out of the land of guilt and shame and into the land of peace. He's not trying to steal pleasure from you. He's trying to grant you peace. Because where in the land of peace, sin cannot chain us down any longer. Sin cannot hold us down any longer. We are free to be in a loving union with our God and our Savior for all eternity. That's the land of peace. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's a loving covenant union with our God forevermore. So to repent is to be at peace with God And I want you to imagine that as well. Sometimes when you look at God in the scriptures, he's a terrifying being. In Revelation, it talks about him being like a whirlwind of fire. He's not physical. I can't touch him. And so some some of these godly men who stand before God for the first time, even though they're godly men, they're so terrified by his presence, they fall down as though dead. But to repent, according to the scripture, is to have peace with that God. To be at peace with God is sure confidence, isn't it? Confidence against much smaller, weaker enemies like the devil and his minions. Because it says in Scripture, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or who cares who's against us? Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? You do, right? David ran at the giant. How did he do that? Everyone, including King Saul, is terrified of Goliath. But David, this young teenager storms Goliath with confidence. You're going down, Goliath. How did he do that? David had peace with God. David knew that God was for him. Therefore, who cares who's against him? If he has peace with God, he has confidence. If God is fighting for him, then every battle is his to win for the taking. Wow, that's an amazing thing to know. So the first thing it does is it gives us peace when we repent. When we repent of our sins, God gives us this peace. Number two, peace brings a quietness to the soul. Peace brings a quietness to the soul. When the soul is without peace, it's chaotic. Maybe you know some of your days and some of your weeks act like that. They're chaotic. Without practical knowledge of God's contentment with our hearts, we fill our days with senseless and useless recreations because we really desire peace within our soul. We really do. I think even the world wants peace. Everyone wants peace in their soul, but sadly, most of us are looking to the wrong things for that peace. Consider how many things we have in our lives purely for the purpose of giving us peace, quietness, and calm within our souls. I watch sports for that reason. (laughs) I want peace and quiet and calm in my soul, and for some reason, sports does that. But we refer to these things as recreation or relaxation, yoga, meditation, whatever word is used today. But they're all the same. They're fool's gold. Because only God can bring the peace that you and I desperately seek. Only God can bring that peace. Binge watching cannot bring it. Music cannot bring it. A quiet room with a cup of coffee, although that is good, cannot bring it. It's temporary peace. It's peace that doesn't last. We need peace that lasts. We need peace in the midst of the storms. We need peace in the midst of the battles. And only the Lord 
can bring us the peace we're searching for. It's found at the precious feet of Jesus. The Lord is the only one who can calm our soul and bring quietness to our minds and our hearts. We find his peace when we find the gospel, don't we? Do you remember what King David said in Psalm 23, that classic psalm? Listen to it one more time and consider the peace that God brings to the soul. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, don't you want some of that? Isn't that what you want in your days? Isn't that what you want in your weeks? That kind of peace is what God offers. Peace brings quietness to the soul, but who can give that kind of peace but God alone? And the answer is no one. We need the peace giver. We need Jesus. David only knew this peace and quietness in the soul because of the sacrifice of Jesus, even though it hadn't taken place yet. David trusted the sacrifice was coming. Like he did so many times, Jesus calms the storms, physically sometimes, but more importantly, spiritually calms the storms. He calms the unrest and the disquiet in our soul. That's what he calms. When he says to us, you're mine and I'm yours, child. Rest and be at peace. And even when he commands us to pick up our weapons to fight, he says to us, I'm going before you and I will be your strength. Peace. Peace. So be at peace today, Christian. The Lord, the God of the universe, is your ally in this battle. The Lord, the God of the universe, is your ally. We can be at peace in the midst of a raging spiritual battle. Praise the Lord, right? See, we're going to be in this battle for the rest of our lives, and that's a little disheartening to think about. But for the rest of our lives, we are in this spiritual battle. But the Lord wants us to know that every step of the way we can have his peace. Peace with God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Number three, peace brings about a determination to do God's will. When we're at rest and peace with God, we're secure. We're confident and we're hope-filled. When God says to us, you are righteous in my eyes, I love you. I am planning to bring you home with me one day soon, child. You know what that causes us to do? We pick up our swords and we stare directly into the eyes of the enemy. When Satan sees this kind of peace and that kind of confidence, he's going to run away. This sort of peace and confidence is exactly what the devil does not want to see he knows that when someone has true practical faith in Jesus, they have peace with God. And therefore, they're not concerned with their lives any longer. Right? A warrior not concerned with his life is a mighty warrior. 
A warrior that goes into battle not concerned with his life is a mighty warrior. They have one goal at all costs, to do God's will. We have an example of this in Scripture, and it's a parallel. But David, King David, had these mighty men. He had 30 of these mighty men, these mighty warriors, that kind of did King David's bidding whenever he said so. And I want to read you this one portion of Scripture about these three, three of these 30 mighty men. This story, I want you to see it as a parallel. It's not just about King David, okay? It is, the story does take place with King David and his mighty men, but I want you to see past that. I want you to picture the mighty men as us, and I want you to picture King David as King Jesus. Listen to this passage in 2 Samuel 23, verses 13 to 17. I'm just going to read it out loud. He said, And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave, at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistine was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. Verse 15, And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So David, he's just tired, he's thirsty, he says out loud, not to anyone, Oh, I wish I had a glass of water from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Verse 16, Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried it and brought it to David. Think about that. So David says out loud, I wish I had a cup of water from this, from this well in the Philistine camp. These three men hear it. They bust through the gate, and I, I can only imagine what took place. It doesn't tell us, but when you bust through a Philistine camp and try to take their water as Israelites, there's probably going to be a fight, right? There was probably some brutal battles that took place. So these three guys come back. I can imagine them bloodied and, and sweaty and all kinds of stuff, and they hand this cup of water to David, saying, here you go, King David, here's the water you desired. And this is a strange part of the tale. It says this, but David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord, and he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. It's an interesting story, isn't it? They go and get him water. It's, I'm here to please the king. I want to do his will. Only David had not commanded them to do it. David did not give them this command. They did this on their own, and David considers he's not worthy of this, so he dumps the water out. It's an interesting portion, but I want you to see the parallel here because I want you to understand that there is a king who is worthy. There is a king who is worthy of our sacrifice, even to the point of death, and that's Jesus. Not only that, but he commanded us to do his will at all costs. See, these three mighty men were determined to do the will of the king because what else can life offer except a worthy sacrifice for the king? What better purpose is there in life but a worthy sacrifice for the king? Now, I want you to consider that question except for the king of kings. What better purpose is there in life but a worthy sacrifice for the king of kings? And you know what peace does for us? It brings determination to do the will of the king. If I'm at peace with God, if God loves me, if God is preparing a place for me, then my life is his. His will is to be done no matter what. Peace brings a determination to do the will of the king, or at least it should. So the readiness we receive with the gospel of peace is a real and powerful piece of armor in this fight against the devil, because it does, number one, it causes us to hate and fight sin. 
Number two, it brings calm and rest to our soul at all times. And number three, it brings about this holy violence and determination to accomplish the will of the king. So those are our two pieces of armor we're looking at today. The application for these is quite simple. Number one, put on the breastplate of righteousness, either for the first time, but every single day of your life. In order to stand firm against the devil, we need to daily put on the breastplate of righteousness in a practical sense. We must see what God sees when he looks at us. We must see Jesus. We must remember what Jesus paid for us at Calvary, and we must recite this to the devil anytime he wants to, wants to remind us of our unworthiness to be with God because we are clean, we are healed, we are made new, and we are fully righteous before God's eyes based on the sacrifice of Jesus. Therefore, we are worthy to be on God's path, and we are worthy to serve our God. So number one, see Jesus. Number two, remember what he's done for us. And number three, recite the truth of the gospel to ourselves and to our opponents. That God's righteousness comes to us as a free gift through faith in Jesus. And that gift, once applied, means we are always righteous in God's eyes and always able to be forgiven and given a fresh start. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. And number two, stand ready with the gospel of peace. Are you at peace with God today? Have you trusted in the salvation of the Lord Jesus? See, Christianity cannot be third party. It cannot be, I know God because my parents know God, or I know God because I go to church. You must know God firsthand. You must have your own peace with God. You must have your own salvation of your own sins. Do you have that today? And if you have that gospel of peace, is it causing you to repent of all known sins, to turn away from the things that hurt God, to turn away from the things that steal your peace, that steal your hope? Number two, are you quiet and calm in your soul no matter how life is, no matter how chaotic it is, how many people are against you? Have you found the quiet and the calm in the soul that only the gospel of peace can give you? And number three, are you determined to accomplish God's will at any at all costs. If you and I are at peace with the one true almighty God, then what do we have to lose except the displeasure of our great God by refusing and neglecting to accomplish his will? I don't want that. I don't want the displeasure of my God. And neither should you. Let the peace that the gospel of Jesus brings to our souls also motivate us to resist the devil and to stand firm and to even advance the cause of Christ in this world. If we have peace, we can be determined. And if we are determined and strong, the devil is in trouble. So finally, are you determined to stand firm against the devil? See, discipline and determination, those are our roles. That's not something God does for us. You and I must be determined, and you and I must be disciplined to stand firm against the devil. Are you? Number two, are you going to fasten on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness every day by looking to Jesus and God's word? It's going to take a great amount of discipline. It's true. Because we're in an epic fight for our souls. That's how important this discipline is. It's an epic fight for our souls. Will you be disciplined today for the sake of winning this battle? 
And will you stand ready with the gospel of peace, waiting for your next command from our Lord and Captain? Because the Lord has many commandments to give us. God's word is full of commandments. Are you ready and willing to obey when he says go? If so, you will personally stand firm against the devil. You will accomplish the will of God. And if we all unify in this goal, Wyoming Valley Church, we will stand firm against the devil's schemes, all of us. And not only that, but our God's will and our God's name will be advanced. And isn't that what we all want? To advance the name and the glory of our great God and our Lord Jesus Christ until our captain calls us home. Onward, Christian soldier. All for the glory of our great God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for the gospel of peace. Thank you for the breastplate of righteousness. Where are we without your armor? How can we stand against the schemes of the devil? How can we stand in your presence unless you give us these gifts? And Father, we thank you for these gifts because we needed them and we believe in them. We thank you for Jesus, who is the agent of this salvation and this gospel of peace. Father, help us to be determined and disciplined to stand firm today, to repent of sin, to do your will at all costs, and to be quiet and calm in our soul because we can be, because of that peace you have given us. I pray for Wyoming Valley Church. I pray for all of us individually that we would discipline ourselves. We would be determined to do your will for your great glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.